Am I on? There we go. There's a lot of people here today. I feel like uh, where those ushers go, we should probably do another offering. Um, just kidding. It's good. Amen, right? We got a building to build. All right. If, uh, let's see here. Now, we're delighted to have you with us. Thank you for squeezing in, making room for a wonderful full house this morning as we come together to celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14, where the Holy Scriptures read. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to come to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. For in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today as your holy people who have been called out by your precious name. Father, there's days we don't feel like it. There's days we don't live up to it. But by faith, we do see the hand of God. And so we ask that you would help us as we walk by faith and not by sight to set our gaze upon the unseen things of the world to come and not upon the things of this world which are fickle and fading away. Father, I thank you for everyone you've brought here today. And so, Lord, we ask through the preaching of your word that the word would go out, that it would pierce to the heart of souls, that it would convict, but also that it would encourage. Help us now, help us to see things through your eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to declining great invitations, history is chock full of example after example of people who passed on an invite they should have accepted. So, for example, back in the 1970s, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of the gaming company Atari, it predated Nintendo. Some of you may know what this is. I'm sure many do. But he met with a young entrepreneur who invited him with a special invitation to become a one-third part shareholder in his company for only $50,000. However, after considering the offer, Bushnell thought it over and he decided to decline this invitation. However, years later, this would become an invitation that he would absolutely regret declining 
because the company, you may have seen their logo, is now worth $2.38 trillion, not billion, trillion dollars, if I got that right. That's a lot of money. In the fall of 2003, while an undergraduate at Harvard University, Joe Green and another student began their entrepreneurial careers working to develop a new cutting-edge website. And his first social experiment, it didn't really get off to a good start, actually. In fact, they got called in the dean's office, and they were threatened to be expelled because the site they put together was sort of a dating site where you went on there, and there was picture of their, pictures of their fellow students, and you could rank them on a scale of 1 to 10 of how good-looking you thought they were. And so when people began to see that they weren't as good-looking as they thought they were on the social system, they got quite irate and upset, and so the dean's office almost expelled them. So then they went back to the drawing board, and after brainstorming for new ideas, Joan Green decided he wanted to create a different kind of site, a social site that this time was centered around something a little less controversial, politics, right? Not very controversial. But in light of the recent controversy with the dean's office, his partner, oh, he didn't want to go the direction that his partner went. His partner, what did he want to do? What his partner wanted to do was to make a new social website That would be a little different than the other one. You wouldn't rank people by their looks, but it would be a means of connecting people together. And you may have heard of this little company. It's called Facebook. And so years later, Joe Green, after declining this invitation by the advice of his father, obviously came to regret this greatly so, because Facebook is another company worth buco bucks. One more. On September 25th, 1976, a young group of Irish high schoolers met after seeing a flyer up in their school in a small kitchen of a young boy's home to try to put a band together. And that band, you never have heard of this, I'm sure, it's called The Hype, and it had five members, and they came together to begin their musical careers. But then as time progressed on, they decided it was time to reinvent themselves by relaunching with a brand new name. However, one of their members, he suddenly received a grant from the Irish government to study computer science. And so he decided, hmm, band or degree? And he went with the degree. And so he declined the invitation to the band, which had recently renamed themselves to U2. may have heard of them as well. Who thought you would come to church and hear about Bono? When it comes to declining great invitations... History is chock full of them. In fact, I'm sure many of you can look back at times in your own life where you regret a decision you made. Maybe you were invited to a job, maybe you were invited to a special school, whatever it was, that invitation was something you look back at and you deeply regret having not accepted it. And I'll venture to say this, I'll go one further, that if you knew now what you knew then, and there's a song that goes something along those lines, you would have chosen differently. And it would have had a massive different effect upon your life. And so in Matthew chapter 22, we find a great invitation, which is an invitation not to a job, not to a band, but to a kingdom's wedding feast. And not only do we find the invitation to this great feast, but in this passage, we actually see the reasons for why we would be absolutely fools to not accept this invitation. And so we need to understand why we need to accept this invitation. 
the reasons for it, because if you think about it, if Nolan Bushnell and Joan Green, if they had understood how great Apple and Facebook would have become, do you think they would have passed on that invitation? No, they wouldn't have. Absolutely not. And so for us, too, if we are going to be wise enough to accept the invitation of the kingdom's wedding feast, then we, too, need to know the three main reasons why this is such a great invitation. And here they are. To accept the invitation to the kingdom's wedding feast, we must know the greatness of the king's feast. Secondly, the greatness of the king's fury. And third, the greatness of the king's forgiveness. Now, before we jump into this passage, we have a lot of visitors today, so we probably should do a little recap here of what we looked at in Matthew chapter 21. So today we're in Matthew chapter 22, but we just finished the last few weeks going through Matthew chapter 21. And Matthew chapter 21 sets up chapter 22, so we need a little recap here. So Matthew chapter 21, recap in two minutes or less. In chapter 21, we saw how Jesus examined the Jewish temple, which was the center of Jewish religion. And we saw how when Jesus went and examined that temple, what did he find there? It was dead. It was spiritually lifeless. There was no spiritual fruit whatsoever. And so then after visiting the temple and everything, Jesus shows us an illustration of its fruitless state through the illustration of a fruitless fig tree. And there, Jesus approaches a fig tree, fully expecting there to be fruit. Uh, and why? Because if you know anything about fig trees, people who know anything about fig trees will tell you that if you see leaves on the fig tree from a distance, you can be sure that almost as surely there will be fruit on that tree. But when Jesus approaches the fig tree, does he find any fruit? No. There's no fruit at all on it whatsoever, none. And so what does he do? He curses this tree, and by the next morning, the thing is totally withered away, and the disciples are just mind-blown, like, whoa, how'd how'd this guy do this? It's like, well, how'd he do all the other miracles you saw? This one's not even that big compared to the other ones. But they were perplexed by it, nonetheless. But Jesus cursed this tree, it miraculously withers, and all of this is a picture to show us the state of the Jewish temple. Okay, and if you know much about the history back what happened with the Jewish temple... What happened in 70 AD to that thing? It got wiped out, like to the ground. This thing got completely destroyed. And that was prophesied by Christ as judgment for their fruitless condition. Sure, it might have looked like it had fruit, at least from a distance. Because remember what happened on Palm Sunday? Jesus approached, as he was approaching the temple, the people came out with literal leaves, palm branches, started waving them, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus gets up close to the temple and he sees there's no spiritual fruit whatsoever. And why is there no spiritual fruit? Because there is no living faith in it whatsoever, none at all. And so that's where Jesus cleanses the temple, overturns the tables, gets the whip out, all that stuff. And in response to this, the religious leaders who were the ones who were in charge of that temple, are they thrilled about this? Jesus coming in there and turning things over? No, he's messing up their business. He's challenging their authority before everybody, and they rightly don't like it. They're upset about this. And so the religious leaders get angry, and we see in that chapter where then they go up to him, and they basically say, hey, Jesus, show us your badge. Like, what's your authority to do what you're doing? And in response to their question, Jesus answers it by way of three parables. Now, last week, we looked at two of those parables together, and today now we're looking at the third one. And so if you want to know what those two parables were about, that's not for today, you'll have to go back and get the recordings, but 
With all this said, this sets the table now for us to look at parable number three and see what this has to tell us about the great invitation. So beginning in verse two, the Holy Scriptures read, I'll read these few verses again for us. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. This is a great invitation. I mean, what more does this king need to do? Everything's prepared. They don't got to show up like today. We have a fellowship meal and a lot of you brought food to it. You don't have to do this for this wedding feast. It was all ready. So in this third parable, we find Jesus telling us the kingdom of heaven is like a great wedding feast where the king sets out invites to all the people to come and enjoy it with no cost to them. And this feast, make no mistake, is beyond your wildest dreams, beyond your wildest imaginations. It's a party unlike any party where the party don't stop. Like every day is better than the day before. And in fact, this party, this wedding celebration, the Bible talks a lot about this wedding celebration and what it is. Let me show you an example of this. In Isaiah 25, six through eight, here's what it says. On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will do what? He will make for all peoples a feast. That's the wedding feast imagery, right? A feast of rich food. Nice, that sounds good. A feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." That sounds like a pretty good party. No more death. I'll take that one. How about you? I mean, look what's in this. And you know what? When, when you think about how the Bible describes heaven, it's kind of sad, but it's no wonder then why people aren't that interested in heaven when they think about how the world thinks about heaven in contrast to what the Bible says about heaven. Sit on clouds all day and play harps. Okay, I guess that's better than the other place. How long do I, can I wait before I go there? You know, that's, that's the way we think about this because we, we, our view of heaven is based upon far side cartoons. And I don't know if you've ever seen that old movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. But that's, that's kind of how we develop our view of heaven. And yet when we look at what the Bible says about heaven, it's not even close to a description of what it actually is. Heaven is a physical reality. It's not spiritual pie in the sky. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is resurrected bodies. Heaven is eating and drinking and not cheap, junky food either. I mean, look what Isaiah said there. A feast of rich food, feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. That's not cheap Lunchables or fake little juice cups that I don't even think actually should legally be able to be counted as juice. That stuff's more like one degree away from melted plastic. What we find in the Bible isn't going off to some pie in the sky heaven. What we find in the Bible is heaven coming down to earth. And if you want to read what that looks like, read the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. We don't spend our eternity off in the clouds playing harps. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about this great feast, which we're all invited to. And we, have, we absolutely have to get this right. 
This matters big time because if we're going to understand the importance of this invitation, we need to know what it is we've been invited to, right? Absolutely we do. Look at what verse four says. Here's how the king describes this feast. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves. Everything is ready. Now we're about to celebrate here right after this service, a Thanksgiving meal together right in this room as a church and soon as a society right after that. And no offense here, but as great as cooking as all y'all's cooking is, it ain't gonna come close to what is gonna be available in this feast. Not even close. Do you know that in the ancient Near East, when they celebrated weddings, it wasn't like it was in our day. It wasn't just like a one-time event for you know, several hours where you go and have this wedding celebration. No, this was a, almost on average, a seven-day-long wedding feast where every day just kept getting better and better and better, and the party just kept going for seven days straight. It was awesome. This was something you didn't want to miss, especially so if you were invited to the king's wedding feast. And why? Because he had money. He could really make a party. He had everything, all the money he needed to have all the food, all the wine, all the drink, everything they needed was there at the king's feast. And so if you were invited to that and then rejected that invitation, like how dumb, how foolish to reject such an awesome invitation. And yet that is exactly what so many do, which leads to the king's furious response, which leads us to our second point. To accept the invitation to the kingdom's wedding feast, we must know the greatness of the king's feast. And it is great, no questions there. But we also must come to understand the greatness of the king's fury. Look at verses three through seven if you have your Bibles. Matthew 22, three through seven, it says, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king then was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. When the king sends out his servants, to call all those who were already previously invited to come to the feast, they decline. And you probably have no idea how rude this would have been back in this day and age. It would have been absolutely rude. It would have been ridiculously rude, in fact. You get an invite from the king, you don't decline it. Not if you want to live. I mean, first off, you should go because it's a great invitation. But if you reject his invitation and you say, "Mm, I just don't feel like going, that was a deep Deeply rude thing. It was a slap in the face. And yet all these invitees, the invitees, they look at this and they're like, hmm, wedding feast is starting. I got better things to do than come to your son's wedding feast. That's what they tell him. And in response, what does the king do to such blatant disrespect? He's sending the troops and wipe them out, right? Not so fast. Hold up. He doesn't do that quite yet. He sends out more servants to invite them again. This is this is preposterous. The king would then send out more servants. What a humbling thing to do. He had sent out servants. They didn't accept the invitation. So he's like, I'm gonna send out more servants to you know, invite them again and try to urge them to come. And that's what it says. He comes and he's like, please come. I want you to come. I want you to come to this wonderful feast that I've prepared. And yet they still don't. They won't. They refuse to. And what do they do instead? They respond in one of two ways. 
They respond either with indifference or with hostility. And in Luke's account of this parable, it describes it in a little bit more detail about how this indifferent group responded. And let's look at some of their excuses here. Here's what it says in Luke 14. But they all alike began to make excuses. These are terrible excuses. The first said, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. Please have me be excused. You got to go see your field over going to the wedding feast? Like, save that for another day, dummy. Like, what are you talking about? Let's keep reading. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So why don't they come here? All that boils down to the fact that they're preoccupied with their lives. They're too busy for the king and his great feast. They don't have time for something like that. They got more important things to do than go to the king's great celebratory wedding feast. It's absolutely ridiculous. And yet, how many of us here today are doing the exact same thing? How many of us here today have been invited by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to this great heavenly feast that we just looked at a minute ago? And though the invitation has been given, ultimately, you've looked at it, you've opened it up, and you said, maybe for another day, not today. And why? Because you're indifferent. And you're indifferent because you're too caught up with your lives. You're too busy living for the things of this world instead of the greater eternal things in the world to come. And the things of this world, even the best things in this life, they are but shadows in comparison to the eternal things that are coming, to the eternal weight of glory that awaits all of us in this great feast who accept the invitation. And yet so many refuse to because they're clinging on to these falling apart things of this world. And yet, what does Jesus tell us back in Matthew chapter six in his sermon in the Mount on this? Here's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Make no mistake, you cannot serve both the creation and the creator. It's one or the other. It's not one foot in, one foot out sort of an approach. You have to pick one of the two. For you were, as Jesus said, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, which is precisely then what happens in the second response as the indifference of many of these people then manifests now with some of them with flat out hostility towards the king's servants for simply inviting them to come. Look at verse six. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. First, God sent his servants, which are the prophets. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you've read the Bible at all, you know, that how were, you know how the prophets were treated and how were the prophets treated. They killed basically all of them. Right? They got upset because the prophets came along and they're like, hey, stop living for the things of this world. Live for the feast that's coming. And they're like, uh, shut up. We're going to kill you. Be quiet. And that's what they did. So then in Jesus' time, God sends the forerunner, which is John the Baptist, to announce that the Son of God has come. Wedding feast is, let's go. We're ready. The Son's here. Let's come on in. Let's have this feast. And what do they do? They kill the forerunner. They cut his head off. They chop it off and put it on a platter. 
And then when God sent his one and only son to them and he made himself known as he's doing in his last week of ministry here before he goes to the cross, this passion week, as we know, they end up killing him as well in response to this great invitation. And why? Because they're too devoted to the things of this world, not the God of this world, which is nothing but high-handed rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the creator God of this universe. And what do all kings do in response to treasonous rebellion? Do they just say, ah, well, I guess they don't like me. No, they send in the troops and they absolutely wipe them out. And that's exactly what this king does. He unleashes his fury upon them. And so in verse seven, it reads, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. We understand here that the Jewish people were the initial invites to this great wedding feast. They were, they absolutely were. They got the first invite. And in fact, they were quite proud about the fact that they had the first invitation to this feast. And they thought simply because they were invited made them special. As we're gonna see, that wasn't the case at all. And still they claimed that they were excited for this great invitation. But the truth was when push came to shove, when it was time to actually step forward and take it, they didn't want it because they were living for the things of this world. And so they might have said, oh yeah, sure, we want that invitation. We've got it, we're gonna go to it. But then when it actually came time, their actions spoke louder than their words as they rejected it. And the reason they wanted nothing to do with it was because they were in love with the things of this world instead of the God of this world who made all these things. And so when the time came, they declined their invitation and they responded either in their declaration and they're declining the invitation with indifference or violence towards him. John 1.11 tells us this about Jesus and his ministry. It says, he came to his own and his people did not receive him. And so because they rudely and violently refused to accept the king's invitation, the king then responds with a just violence of his own as he wipes it out and wipes them out and destroys their city. And in Psalm 2, if you want to read about, I mean, this didn't surprise God. Didn't surprise him a little bit. Psalm 2 talks about this. I want to read this for us. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How's God respond to this? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you, speaking the father to the son here, being Jesus Christ, you, Christ, will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. To disregard the king's gracious invitation comes with serious consequences. And so for the Jewish people, not only was their city destroyed, as we mentioned earlier in 70 AD, as the judgment of God came down upon them with their temple being completely torn down, but they themselves were cast out of the great wedding feast and they missed out upon the invitation of a lifetime. And yet, what does the king do? Does he say, oh, well, 
pack it up. So much for that feast. Maybe we can freeze some of the food. No, he doesn't. He doesn't cancel it. He goes on to show the greatness of his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness, which leads us to our final point. Verse 8 through 10 read, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants then went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. And look what it says then. All whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you see the grace and mercy of God dripping off these verses? They absolutely are. After the Jewish nation rejected their invitation and even turned and killed the Son of God, God graciously turns to all peoples, all nations, both good and bad, and invites them into this great wedding feast. This is remarkable. And so the question I have for you is, which are you? Are you a good moral person? Good religious moral person? Great, guess what? You've been invited to the feast. Or are you an immoral, unreligious person who has a life full of sin? Guess what? You've been invited too. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad, you've been invited to this feast. And the point here is, you having received the invitation has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with him. Do you see that? Has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with him. For the free invitation is about God's goodness, not ours. Because if it was based on ours, we wouldn't get the invite. We would not be allowed in. And so this invitation into the great wedding feast, it's not based upon your merit. It's not based upon your works or lack of works or your sinful works, we could say. It's based entirely upon God's mercy and his grace, period, full, stop. So accept the invitation, accept it. How? By exchanging your sinful robes of unrighteousness for Jesus Christ's righteous robes for his perfected holy robes. Because if you don't, you too may have received the invitation, but then you will one day find yourself being rejected and cast out of the heavenly banquet. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 14. But when the king came, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Oops. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. For in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why was this man cast out? I mean, he's here at this wedding feast, right? Like the, the king of this feast sends out his servants, says, bring them all in, good and bad. But when this man comes in, he's in a, not appropriate attire, right? Because that's they dressed up back then just like we do for weddings today because it was a sign of respect. And so this man shows up. He's not wearing the right attire. And so he's cast out. But what, is that only the reason he was cast out? Was it because he wasn't good enough? Was it because he didn't try hard enough to clean his clothes up for the wedding feast so that he would be accepted before God? If you think that's what it is, you don't get it. 
That is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying, hey, the invitation goes out, accept it as Christians, but you know what? When you get to that feast, you better make sure your good works outweigh your bad works, otherwise you're going to be thrown out of there. That's not what this text is saying. It's not what it's saying. These robes do not come from your righteous achievements, and if you think they do, you will be cast out because there is no amount of turpentine or whatever cleaner out there that you can scrub out the sin out of your sinful garments. It's not going to work. The only way that you can be robed appropriately for the wedding feast is through the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. When I look at the sad end of this man's, uh, the sad end of this man, it makes me wonder how many there are here today who, like the Jews, thought that because they were called, that they were chosen, and there was nothing else they had to worry about, no big deal. And yet, like the Jewish people who were rejected, they never, this, maybe you're here today and you've never repented. You've never turned from your sin to trust in Christ, the Savior, by grace through faith in him. And your lives show that. I wonder if there's any here today whose lives are as fruitless as the Jewish nation as Jesus' day. And it's fruitless not because they didn't try hard enough. It's fruitless because it's faithless. They are faithless. And yet, the danger here is we can delude ourselves into thinking that just because we go to church, just because we accepted that invitation to come on a friend's day, just because we accepted that invitation to come on, you know, some once in a while to church, just because we said a prayer, that means we're in. That's the danger, right? It absolutely is. I've heard some people say, here's another danger. They say that when they stand before God someday, you know what they're going to do? They're going to have a talking with him. They're going to plead their case. Let me tell you why I deserve to be in this feast. Let me explain to you why I'm good enough for heaven. And yet what happens to this guy when he's here at this feast, not properly dressed for it? Does he have much to say? No. He's completely speechless. He has nothing to say. And make no mistake, if you try to take your dirty clothes of sin and make them good enough for the feast of heaven, it's not going to work. You will be cast out. It doesn't matter how, how hard you scrub them with a brush, you're not getting the stains out. But do you know what can get those stains out? The blood of Christ, which washes our filthy, stains ro- filthy stained robes and makes them as white as snow. Look at Isaiah 118 with me. It's a wonderful verse. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How does this happen? How does this work? What do we got to do? Well, by faith, we see the hand of God. By faith, not work so that no one will boast. And so by faith, we must trust in the pure, spotless Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How did Christ become sin for us? Well, by leaving heaven's feast, so that he could suffer the fury that you and I deserved. And he did that so that we could experience the forgiveness 
of the king that comes freely and fully by faith in his name. And when you're wrapped in that, and only that, in the righteousness of Christ, not your own filthy robes of unrighteousness, but when you're wrapped in that, then you can say, as the prophet Isaiah said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The feast is coming very, very soon. And it's a feast that is beyond our wildest imaginations. In fact, Paul describes what's coming and he says, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for, we could add, in the feast for those who love him. This is beyond our wildest imaginations. So the question is, are you ready for that day? Are you living for that day? Because today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next month, not next year, not when you're old and gray because heaven sounds boring. No, in Matthew 25, this is another parable we're gonna get to hopefully in the next four years, Jesus warns in that parable by way of another wedding parable where he tells us what? He says, be ready because no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. It can happen at any moment he can show up. That's what he's telling us. And so we need to live ready for Christ's return. For as Jesus told his disciples, he has gone to prepare a place for us. And one day soon, he will return to take us to be with him for that great wedding feast. And it's not just for a measly seven days. I mean, that would be great enough, but it's not. This is a seven, what I believe is the seven year feast that we find in Revelation chapter 19, which doesn't even end after those seven years, does it? What happens? If you keep reading, it goes on and on in the honeymoon of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, where heaven comes down. The holy city that Christ is preparing comes down where he rules and reigns in a physical earth, in a physical reality, with food and drink beyond what you can possibly imagine. So are you ready? The feast is coming. The invitations have been sent. Are you living for the things of this world? or for the things of the world to come. As Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And those who are chosen are the children of faith who trust in Christ's righteousness for their wedding garments, not in their own. And so may we all live faithfully for him, not by living for the things of this world, but by living for the things of the world to come as we go out into the highways and into the byways, calling all to repent and turn by faith to Christ Jesus. Why? So they too might enter this great feast. That's what we're about here. That's what we're trying to do. We are trying to collectively turn our attention to the coming of Jesus Christ, which is coming so very soon. So very soon. Are you ready for that day? I trust and pray that you are. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And Lord, we just ask, that there wouldn't be a one here who declines this great invitation. That they wouldn't foolishly think that the things of this world are of more value than the things of the eternal world, which is coming soon, which is invading this world so very soon. And so, Father, I pray that if there's one here today 
who has not accepted the invitation that by your grace and your mercy that they would turn in repentance from their sin to trust in Jesus Christ who paid for all the sin they could ever do and more upon the cross. And so by faith, we ask that they would look upon Christ and to trust in him for their righteousness, not in their own self-righteousness, which is nothing but filthy rags. Help us as a church, help us to live in the reality of the coming kingdom feast, to not get caught up with all the things of this world. And they are, many of them are good things and there's nothing wrong with enjoying them. But we ask that we would not make good things into ultimate things, for that is idolatry. We ask that we would see all of these good things that come from your gracious and loving hand and that we would use them for the kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.